Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he'd worn no clothes, and he hadn't lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demonized man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of God. A friend of mine has been in pastoral ministry for 50 years and he says that during those 50 years he's been asked three questions more than any other. First question is, can you lose your salvation? Second question is, what happens when you die? And the third question is, what is the deal with the pigs? He says, he said more than any other, those are the three questions he's been asked. There's something about this story that really makes people feel weirded out. They don't quite know what to do with it because it's such a peculiar story. I mean, demons anyway, it makes the whole story for contemporary people feel, it feels a bit odd and you think, oh, well, it's, how do we handle that and how do we adapt it into our understanding? But then you throw in the pigs and the demons going into the pigs and them all drowning and people just find the story really, really strange. And you can see why, because I think with many of the stories in the Gospels, you can sort of transpose it into 21st century London and it, and it works. So you can imagine this person being healed of such and such or that person having this encounter or Jesus doing this teaching and you can put it somewhere in Greenwich or Bromley or Lewisham and it kind of works. But you can't imagine this story with all the pigs charging into the lake in Beckenham Place Park. It just doesn't work. You think, hang on a second, that, how on earth do we make sense of this story? And puzzling, strange, weird stories in Scripture are actually very important for us. And they, they serve an important function in your reading of Scripture because they make you slow down almost to a stop to try and figure out what's going on. And so when you find very confusing, puzzling, difficult bits of Scripture, it's often a sign, I think, that God wants us to slow right down and get, be very attentive to what's going on in order to find out what this story or what this text is supposed to be doing for us and what it's supposed to reveal to us. I, I think of weird passages of Scripture a bit like, you know those metal bars that they have 
and all over the place. But you know, the, the one I often drive through at Ennisdale Road, where they make you metal bars next to your car that they make you slow down almost to a stop to get through without scraping the, the wing mirrors. That I find puzzling passages in scripture serve like that. They make you you can't just drive straight through them. You can't read this story and go, oh yeah, that's fine. It makes you go, what? Pigs drowned? What is happening here? And I didn't know pigs could get demonized. And it makes you slow right down and just pay attention to the details of the story to try and learn what the Holy Spirit has to say to the churches through this story. Now, you've heard me say this before, probably, but I I think it's very helpful to think about reading Scripture at three levels, like three Russian dolls. I've sometimes even got them out and said, look, little Russian dolls embedded in each other. You read the Scriptures initially at a personal level. You say, this is a story about a person. What's happening to them? What did they learn or do wrong or discover? Or how did Jesus help them? But then you want to read it not just at a personal level, but at a national level. What's going on here, not just with the man or the woman, but with the nation of Israel? What's happening at a slightly bigger level with the people of God, with Israel? And how does this narrative reflect what's taking place with the people of God? And then you want to read it at the biggest level, which is like a global cosmic gospel level, the evangelical level. What is happening in the gospel for the world? In what sense does this story reflect God's massive design to reconcile all things in heaven and earth under one head, even Christ? To make all of the kingdoms of the world the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. What's happening at that huge level in this story? And I think that, and that, that, that matrix can really help us with this story. We can go through, okay, so this is a story about a man. It's also a story about a nation and what's happening, God's doing with the people of God. And it's also a story about the whole world and the redemption of all things. And so we're going to read it at those three levels, I suppose, following that sort of structure to try and help us understand this very weird uh, narrative. But in the end, this is a story of the freedom that comes in the kingdom of God, even if it comes in a way that we find very strange in Britain today. And the freedom comes not just to the man, but to Israel and to the world and all those who believe. Let's start with the personal level. We have a man here who is just about as afflicted as it's possible to be. He's, he's demonized. He's naked. He's living in a graveyard. He's totally out of control. Even people who try and chain him up, he just breaks the power. Mark 5, when we read the same story in Mark's gospel, Mark says he's cutting himself with stones. I mean, this is just a broken, horribly oppressed uh, man. He's probably the man in the gospels for whom we are intended to feel pretty much the most sympathy out of anybody. You know, he's got more things against him than anyone else I can think of. Verses 27 to 29 There met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he'd worn no clothes. He hadn't lived in a house but among the tombs. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, but he'd break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. You see, I mean, this, this, if ever a person needed freedom, it's this guy. He is oppressed spiritually. That's demonization. He's oppressed physically. He's naked. He's out of control. He's cutting himself socially. He's oppressed, he's living outside the city, in amongst the gravestones. He's guarded, he's chained, and he's oppressed, obviously, mentally and emotionally. I mean, this is a troubled man. He sees Jesus coming towards him, and he, or the demons through him, or both, cry out in anguish, saying, please don't torment me, what are you doing? I mean, this is somebody who sees the hope of the world in person, and he's horrified by what that might mean for him. This is a a very, very troubled individual. He needs freedom as much as anybody else we find in Scripture. And it's important that we don't, 
what do you call it, rationalize this story and make it medicalize it. So say, well, no, of course, this man, he wasn't really demonized. There's no spiritual dimension to this. This is a man with a medical condition. He might have, and you get this, interpreters do it. You say, he's obviously got epilepsy or schizophrenia or personality disorder or psychosis or something. And they'll try and, from a distance of 2,000 years through an ancient text, try and diagnose him with a psychological condition and then apply medical you know, treatments to him effectively. So this is what really needed to happen. And they'll sort of despiritualize the story. But I think that trivializes this story. And I also think it misrepresents what those conditions are. Because people I've known and met and ministered to, or even in one case had in my family, of those conditions look nothing at all like this. This is a much more complex spiritual picture. In many ways, what we need to do when we face, if you like, people who are obviously have got some medical challenges, but there is a demonic spiritual element, what we need to do is instead of assuming that all spiritual problems are ultimately medical, we need to kind of do the opposite and say, no, an awful lot of physical medical problems have got spiritual components to them as well. And this man's clearly got that. This is spiritual oppression at its darkest, isn't it? Demonization, distress, defilement, dehumanization, amounting basically to death, which is why we see him living among the tombs. This man almost symbolizes being the living dead, like a zombie. He's walking in the tomb. It's almost like the way the story's told is making us think this man, all the things that make human life worth living have been taken away from this man. And as I say, of all the individuals we meet in the Gospels, I have more sympathy for this guy than probably anybody else. And then the Lord Jesus arrives. And he, he walks into the scene and he changes everything. The demons flee. The man is freed. The crowds are afraid. The demons, as powerful as they are over this man, are no match for the son of the most high God. And actually, as soon as Jesus arrives, they know the game is up. They know, oh, we've been controlling this man. We've got all this power. Oh, no, now the son of God is here. We are, are one stronger than us has come. And they immediately start trying to negotiate and haggle. Say, well, please don't send us into the, the abyss, the, the depths, hell. Please send us into the pigs instead. And it's interesting that the way the story is told, three times the word begged is used. The demons begged Jesus. Three times. They say, please don't. We're desperate. We're crying out on our knees to say, oh, son of God, please do what we ask. They are pictured as so far below the authority of the glorious Jesus Christ. There's, there's no right. Demons are powerful compared to this man, and you for that matter. But they're nothing compared to the sovereignty and authority of the maker of the universe now in human flesh. Jesus is sovereign over the darkness. A friend of mine had an experience that was more similar to this than anyone else I know. I, you, I've had a number of encounters with a demonic that look a little like this at times, but nothing really quite like this. But a friend of mine actually had an example where he was, in fact, it was somebody, he was communicating with an unbeliever about the gospel, and they started manifesting demonically, which I could talk more about, but won't go into it for now, but have this very strong demonic reaction. And he says, in the name of Jesus, come out and cast the demon out of the individual. And the demon went into the dog who suddenly goes completely crazy, sort of foaming at the mouth, charging around, having an absolutely hysterical reaction. And he said to me, I learned something that day. I now no longer just say, come out. I say, go to the place that God has appointed you, just so it doesn't go into the dog. And that really made me laugh. I thought, now, in this particular situation, Jesus is very specifically saying, yes, you can go into the pigs. And we will come back to why in a moment. But in this story, the, the key, of course, at the personal level, the key is that this man is now free. 
He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Verse 35. Now by the end of the chapter, he is, verse 39, proclaiming throughout the whole city what Jesus had done for him. What a wonderful testimony that is to be able to say, I was this enchained and this demonized and you all knew about it. And now look what God's done. This is a story of freedom for a man. And the crowds are afraid. And they say in verse 37, they asked him to depart from them for they were seized with great fear. And of course, when you aren't sure what to make of Jesus and you see his power at work, it can scare you. And in this story, it did. But at the personal level, this is a story of freedom for the man. Doesn't help us with the pigs, in my view, yet really, but it's a story about freedom for the man, and that's primarily who we're supposed to empathise with in this story and say, wonderful, God has come and brought deliverance for him. But I think there is a national or corporate, even political level to this story as well, and I want to try and convince you of why I'm saying that. I think Jesus is not just healing one man here, I think he is enacting a healing of Israel as a nation in this story from the enemies who are oppressing her. And I want to try and convince you of why that's true, that I'm not just making it up. I actually say it for three reasons. I think that we are supposed to read this story not just as a story about this man, but as a story of Israel being healed from her enemies and oppressions. And the three reasons I give for that. Firstly, the man is described in ways that very closely echo the way Israel is described in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 verses 4 to 5 describes Israel as a people who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meters in their vessels who say, keep to yourself, don't come near me. Now you can probably see that's a very close connection to the way this man is described. Tombs, pigs, nights alone, keeping people at a distance. And so I think this story is told in a way that's meant to echo that other account of, an, of a nation. And say this is something that's been said before in scripture, but it's been said of the people of God more generally than just one guy. That's the first reason. Second reason is when Jesus, that that I think we can read this story nationally and politically, is that when Jesus says, what's your name? The man says, Legion. Now, if I stop people in the street around where we are now and said to people, if I say the word Legion, what do you think it means? The answer you'd probably get would be, I kind of think of it as a Roman word for armies. Right? That's probably what that, in ordinary English, that's what that word would come to mean. It's a Roman military unit of exactly the sort that was stationed all around Palestine in this period. And so the word, you've, got a, you've got a man who's being described as oppressed in language very reminiscent of Israel, and you've got a demon that is being described using a word that's very familiar as a way of identifying Roman armies stationed all over the Holy Land in this period. And then the third reason is that you've then got, not just the man and the demons called legion, but you've then got pigs, who, to be honest, and sorry if this offends you, well, I'm not sorry if it offends you, it's kind of true. Throughout scripture, pigs represent people like me, and most of you, which is Gentiles. Pigs pigs represent Gentiles, outsiders, people who are unclean, who are not by, by nature in the family of God. We're not descended from Abraham. I can't trace my biological roots back to Abraham. I'm unclean. I'm I. At this period of history, I'd have been outside the covenant people. And the pigs represent people like me. And they are the ultimate example of an unclean animal in the Old Testament. And they represent unclean people like me. Unclean people who will, through the death of Christ on our behalf, become clean people. Become 
you know, as you find in Acts chapter 10 and elsewhere, they've become a symbol, pigs along with other unclean animals, of how people like me, Gentiles, not Jews, are allowed to come or get welcomed in by God to be part of his people because Jesus has died for our sins as well as the sins of Israel. But at that, if I stand back and I look at that, I think, okay, so I've got a man here described in ways that echo the experience of Israel in her death and oppression. I've then got a demon who looks like he's described in language very similar to Roman, Roman legions. And then I've got pigs representing Gentiles. We could be forgiven for thinking, and I do, that this story is not just about the man. It's actually a little... Richard Hayes, a New Testament commentator, calls it a political cartoon. He says it's almost like this story functions at the personal level but it functions at the national level as well in which an unclean afflicted naked dead nation Israel is oppressed by legions of demons Rome until Israel's king arrives Jesus and boots out the Roman demons if you like into the unclean Gentile pigs who then charge down the cliff and drown in the sea it's almost as if he's saying, I am driving out the oppression of Rome from among you and they're gonna, they came to you over the sea and set themselves up and took over your land. But I, as I arrive as the king of Israel, I'm going to drive them back out again and you are going to be freed. But ultimately, I'm coming to deliver not just one person. I'm coming to deliver a whole nation. The freedom of the kingdom is not just for individual people. It's for the whole people of God. And the ultimate enemy from whom they need to be liberated isn't actually Rome. It's the devil. It's the powers of darkness that work through Rome, but often work without Rome as well, as they do in our present day. And Israel, just like this man, is going to find herself healed, found at peace, made whole through the deliverance of the Messiah, and is going to find herself sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in her right mind. It's like, do you see, it's like a paradigm of a much bigger freedom deliverance that's going to come through the kingdom of God being preached and enacted by Israel's king. So I think there's a, there's a sort of second level. There's a little personal level. There's the national level. And then, of course, I think we need to read it gloriously for us at the global evangelical gospel level. There is a, a huge big picture kind of kingdom freedom that is made available through Jesus, which is for us. And in that sense, this demonized man is a visceral and powerful picture of what all of us are like outside of Christ. Whether we immediately think that about ourselves or not, this man embodies literally what the scriptures say about me outside of Christ spiritually. So, he, this man is demonized, naked, living among the tombs, bound with chains, isolated, scared. The scriptures say those things are true of me spiritually when I'm outside of Christ. And of you. Outside of Christ, the Bible says we are captured by the devil. 2 Timothy 2.26. That we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Revelation 3.17. That we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. That we are lifelong slaves to fear. Hebrews 2.15. And so when I get texts like that and I put them together, I think, this man, just one person, is embodying in a physical way all of the things that the scriptures say are true of me spiritually when I'm not in Christ. And this man puts on display for me the hopelessness of Christlessness, if I can call it that. He exposes what we all try and cover up with our jobs and our families and our gadgets and our successes and possessions, that we are in desperate need of deliverance. And so this man reflects the life of every unbeliever. Everybody who's outside of Christ 
might well be able have made a better job than he has of covering it up and of disguising it. But ultimately, the scriptures say you're spiritually in this condition that this man is. It's just he's a visible, physical version of what is true of you spiritually when you don't know the Lord. And, of course, this man not only shows the problem, he shows the solution. Because he reveals the breadth and scope of what happens to all of us when we encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. When, when like for this man, Jesus steps in and everything changes. That Jesus comes to you and comes to me and says, what's your name? That he commands the legions of darkness and the principalities and the powers to say, come out of her. Come out of him. And we get to watch the powers of darkness flee from us and drown in the waters of baptism, never to rise again. And our nakedness and our shame is covered with clothes of righteousness. And our dwelling place, which until now had been among the tombs, in the de- in place of the dead, changes from the tomb to a temple. And we are no longer slaves to fear but we have the spirit of adoption who cries out, Abba, Father. And we start saying things like, please, I want to travel with you. I'm going to go out into my town and tell the good news of all that God has done for me. We find ourselves restored in body, mind and spirit, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in our right minds, to the point that our friends can barely recognise us. And then Jesus tells us, like he told this man, return to your home, go and tell everybody what God has done for you. So I want to finish with a story of somebody to whom I suppose this happened pretty recently. It's a man you may not have heard, may not have heard of, some of you may have. It's a man called Paul Kingsnorth. He was, a, an, over the last 20, 25 years, he was an independent journalist for the, for the newspaper. He was an eco-activist. He was an editor for Greenpeace. He was then a Booker Prize long-listed novelist. So he's a very successful, accomplished man. And the New Statesman magazine identified him as one of the top 10 troublemakers in Britain today. He was also a witch in a local Wiccan coven when this story happened. Uh, He was basically somebody who would tell his story and say, yeah, I've I've done all the things that you do when you're trying to find peace of soul and peace of mind. And he was very much, you would say, not a Christian in a sense. He'd feel almost a stereotypical example of a classic progressive person who is not in Christ. And uh, he became a Christian very recently and has written a moving account of his testimony. And I just want to read some of it to you and then particularly focus in on the final paragraph, which I'll put on the screen in a moment. He said, suddenly I started meeting Christians everywhere. They were coming out of the woodwork, strangers emailing me out of the blue, priests coming to me for help with their writing. I found myself having conversations with friends I'd never known were Christian who suddenly seemed to want to talk about it. An African man contacted me on Facebook to tell me he'd had a dream in which God had told him to convert me. It kept happening for months. Christ to the left of me, Christ to the right. It was unnerving. I turned away again and again, but every time I looked back, he was still there. I began to feel I was being hunted. I wanted it to stop. At least I thought I did. I had no interest in Christianity. I was a witch, a Zen witch, in fact, which I thought sounded pretty damned edgy. But I knew who was after me, and I knew it wasn't over. One evening, I was sitting in the kitchen of the house in which our our coven, the gathering of witches, had its temple. We were about to go in and conduct an important ritual. As we got up to leave, I felt violently ill. I was dizzy, I was sick, lightheaded. Everyone noticed and fussed over me as I sat down, my face pale. I had an overpowering feeling that I shouldn't go into the temple. I felt as if I was being physically prevented from doing it. Someone had staged an intervention. After that, 
There was no escape. Like C.S. Lewis, I couldn't ignore the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. Suddenly, I could see how everyone in the room was connected to everyone else, and I could see what was going on inside them and inside myself. I was overcome with a huge and inexplicable love, a great wave of empathy for everyone and everything. It kept coming and coming until I had to stagger out of the room and sit down in the corridor outside. Everything was unchanged and everything was new and I knew what had happened and who had done it and I knew it was too late. I had just become a Christian. I grew up believing what all modern people are taught, that freedom meant lack of constraint. Orthodoxy taught me that this freedom was no freedom at all, but enslavement to the passions, a neat description of the first 30 years of my life. True freedom, it turns out is to give up your will and follow God's. Surrender or rebellion, sacrifice or conquest, death of the self or triumph of the will, the cross or the machine. We have always been offered the same choice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the freedom of God that comes through the proclamation of the kingdom. Lord, we thank you for liberating This demonized man, we thank you for liberating the nations. We thank you for liberating the world. We thank you for liberating this man we've just heard about. Brother, I haven't even met yet. Thank you for liberating us. Thank you for the freedom that comes as you drive out the power of darkness and send them into the sea, never to rise again. Lord, I pray we would live and stand in the freedom of the kingdom of God, that we would be able to celebrate the king who has set us free. Oh, Jesus Christ, our living hope. May we live and stand in the freedom that you have won for us. We thank you so much for your love and your deliverance. Amen.